0: 2 Peter
1: 3rd chapter we continue going through this letter actually today and then next Sunday will be our last time in this text 2 Peter 3rd chapter verses
0: 1 through 10
1: this is now the second letter that I am writing to you beloved in both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the predictions of the Holy Prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Grant to us now, Father, by your grace and your kindness that we'd understand this, your word. By your spirit work here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In this chapter, Peter looks back at what he's told us in chapter two, and you remember that, that there were deadly dangers from false teaching and false teachers. And that they are in a deadly position because they're subject to the judgment of God. In fact, he says they'd have been better off if they'd had no association at all with the church, if they'd have had no connection to the gospel because having been near it, having been around it, and then rejecting it, they had added to their judgment. A principle that's found throughout the text of Scripture, my friends, is this, the greater the knowledge, the greater the accountability. The more you know, the more is expected of you. And how dangerous it is, how deadly, how horrid it would be to actually sit under the accurate preaching and teaching of the word of Almighty God, the actual gospel, and never believe it yourself. That, my friend, is a horror that you want to avoid at all costs. But he's also looking back to the first chapter, where he references for believers that we have all these precious and very great promises. In fact a little later in the third chapter he's going to say it, verses 12 and 13 waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn but according to his promise we're awaiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Believers are waiting for a new heaven, a new earth a place where righteousness dwells. But we're not only awaiting a new world of righteousness, we're also awaiting the end of time, God's judgment, the world coming to an end. Now, this is not something that's on many folks' minds, although I have noticed that even our own culture, and it seems like culture always does this, it doesn't matter... What the worldview is, everybody's got some idea of how we started, and everybody's got some idea how you live, and they've also got an idea of an ending. Now, what I've noticed is almost all the cultural ideas of our day end badly.
0: It's it's variations of we're doomed.
1: We're doomed because of global warming, we're we're doomed because of fascism, or we're doomed because of communism, or we're doomed because the wrong person occupies the White House, or we're doomed to be... Fill in the blank, my friends. They're all actually featuring some of the worst elements even of Christian eschatology where some see nothing but doom and gloom at the end. And I don't think that's how we're supposed to look at this. We have a worldview, we have an understanding of how the world works, right? It includes an end time. And we ought not be afraid of that, nor ashamed of it. It actually has a tremendous impact on us now. Because what we deal with around us, as has always been the case, we deal with scoffers. There are mockers around. You've noticed that, haven't you? There's people out there that make fun of the Christian faith. They laugh at it. They scorn it. They mask it under some version of intellectualism. They're just too smart for this. Only ignorant people believe these things, which I find laughable in the extreme. Some of the brightest minds that history ever produced were Christian in their outlook. You know, it's not hard to sound smart when everybody else in the room's dumb. And that happens a lot. That's why I warn our students as you go off to college, bear this in mind, my dear young believers. Just because the guy or gal up front has a whole bunch of letters after their name and sounds very articulate, it doesn't mean they're necessarily smarter than you, they just have more information. They've thought about things longer than you have. Don't let them take you off your feet. Fact is, if you had a chance to look into their personal lives, you would run screaming. For many of them have disastrous personal lives. So what are we supposed to do with mockers? They seem louder today than they used to be. They seem more bold our struggle is we seem to be troubled by scoffers who question our faith. But here's what Peter's saying to us. So he's trying to show us something here. God's promises, even those of destruction, must be believed because it's all a piece. It all goes together. You see, you don't get to pick and choose on this stuff. I find sometimes Christians will make the attempt to change their understanding of origins to make it fit with the world's understanding of origins because they're embarrassed by what we say about origins. Or they're embarrassed by a view of end times and so they change that. Or they're embarrassed by the Christian ethic and they try to come up with a way to somehow meld Christian orthodoxy with the current ethics of our day. I remind you, quoted this last week, Everybody that wants to be wedded to this age will find themselves widowed in the next one. You just can't keep up with how fast culture changes. And that in and of itself ought to tell you there's a problem. There is no establishment. Consider this. First the consistency of the Lord's promises. Verses 1-7. through 7. First Peter points us this way, verses 1 and 2. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. What a wondrous lesson. We all need reminders. The essence of what I do as a preacher is this. I gave up years ago on originality. Originality usually leads you to bad places. What is needed, what is desperately needed on all our parts, is to be reminded of what our sincere faith is actually about. Because the assaults all around us, and even the sin that is still in us, does battle with that. That's why it is so essential, I think, at least once a week, that we gather like this, that we may be reminded of what's real and true in this world. That this world isn't the only world. And there's a world above and beyond and around and through this that is reality. Now I'll say that because, let me clarify a bit, I think for most it's not an intellectual battle. You don't necessarily have serious intellectual doubts about faith, but boy, the wear and tear of living <laughs> can make you forget, right? Anybody have a rough work week? I know there's teachers out there. Lord, have mercy. You, some of you started this week. It had to have been rough, yeah. Students, was it hard? You went back to school. Nobody's admitting anything. They're afraid they get in trouble. All right. You get bad news about a family situation. You get bad news about a monetary situation. You get bad news and it's like hammered, 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 hammered and starts slipping. You lose track. And so Peter reminds us that in wholesome thinking the words of the Old Testament, the commands of Christ through the apostles in the New Testament that we should unapologetically find instruction and direction from the Word of God. That's where this is driving my friends. Can it not be that you go through a struggling, difficult day and you go to bed that night and you've wrestled and you're just weary and you crash and you get up the next morning and for some reason you have an instinct, a direction that says, you know, I ought to read the Bible this morning. (laughs) And you pick up a Bible or you open a devotional book and suddenly it's like the world has righted itself again. The horizon is level and clear. And nothing has changed. The circumstances are not any different. But your perception of them has changed. Because being the Lord's child, this is how He cares for you. The consistency of the Lord's promises means that you and I ought to hang our lives on the words of Scripture. Further, it indicates and tells us this word creates, upholds, and destroys, does all of those things, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. That's what scoffers do, following their own sinful desires. And here's their question, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation, for they deliberately overlook this fact. The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. In the face of skeptics and scoffers my friends you and I must hold on to the word of God. Now I know we, we struggle Because scoffers who make assaults, sometimes we go, oh, have I not thought through this right? Now, let me let you in on a little secret, folks. Doubt is not uncommon. If you're a Christian and you've had doubts, may I assure you that is normal. What did I just turn on? Stop it. Doubts are not the problem. When we let the doubts fester, when we let the doubts go on, that's when we get in trouble. Now if you ask me, Doug, when was the last time you had any doubts? If I said, what time is it? That'd probably be a little too much. But I will tell you that it's been recent. There are times when you stop and you know, now here's one will keep you awake at night. You hear the assaults of people from the outside and the enemy starts messing with you and maybe your life's been a little bit difficult and you know your own failures and you sit there and say, okay, have I just wasted the last 50 years of my life? Now I'm sorry if that bothers some of you that I'd actually think that. Um, I'm here to
0: tell you I'm still here.
1: There's nothing wrong with the doubts. The problem is what do we do with them? Do we actually address them? Christian parents, let me encourage you. When your children start asking hard questions, don't run away from that. That's not an unusual thing. Sit down with them and try to help them find answers. Help them think. Oh my word, please help them think. Help them think Christianly, but by all means, help them think. Now why am I hammering at that? Well, look at Peter's day. I want to point something out to you. This just slapped me in the face this week in a very good way. In Peter's day, the scoffers challenged. Here were their challenges. They challenged the second coming. They denied the world came to existence by the word of God. And they denied that God had judged the world through the flood. And they affirmed that matter physical was eternal.
0: That's what's said here, right?
1: Can I let you in on a a little secret here? The objections haven't changed. Here we are 2,000 years later, here are the objections. The denial of God as creator, the denial of a flood narrative, the denial of the second coming, and the affirmation of a merely material universe. Nothing new under the sun. Now I know people well we, we know a whole lot more scientifically than they did then. Yes. It hasn't necessarily made us any wiser. Did you, did you see the news this last week, or maybe the week before last, the new uh, Johnson Space Telescope? You know Hubble was the big deal. For years, and now there's a new one that's a little further out and got a better lens. And lo and behold, the world of astrophysics and physics in general is suddenly in a turmoil. Because when they pointed that telescope out to the far reaches of the galaxy, expecting confirmation of the orthodoxy within physics today, the Big Bang Theory. That you begin with the singularity, and out of that singularity is this mind-blowing, impossibly huge explosion, and thus the beginning of the universe, and the universe is expanding outward at light years and light years and light years of speed. Their space telescope doesn't look like that when they see things.
0: Now they know what to do.
1: So, some of them are holding on to their big bang orthodoxy. I I just love it when they claim that Christians are the ones who shout heresy through history. Try try denying what some of them say in science today or questioning it. You want to know about heresy trials? Woo! But it, it suddenly changed. And now they're going to have to rethink it. Now they may come up with a way to make the Big Bang work. Please, folks, my world is not physics, okay? I'm not for a moment even going to try to get into that. Uh, I think I'm in over my head. But here's what I recognize. We are as consistently wrong as we are right about the nature of this world and what's actually going on. Over and over again, we've had to change our minds as evidence has come to the forefront. What I'm saying to you, Christian, is don't panic because somebody comes up with an objection because I can basically tell you that their objections all fall in these categories. They deny the Creator. They deny God's involvement in the world. Now that's what I'd go with that, the flood narrative. It's not just the flood. It's the idea that God actually engages in this world. They certainly deny the second coming, and they have to affirm a merely material universe. There's nothing new in
0: the skepticism.
1: Piper said it this way, this is an amazingly modern argument for rejecting the supernatural bodily second coming. It simply says the laws of nature are constant and unchanging. The sun's come up and gone down, the seasons have followed each other, The tides have risen and fallen for thousands of years in perfect order, therefore we must expect this constancy for the future, and any thought that the sky might be rolled up like a scroll and the earth purged with global fire and judgment by the returning Christ is unimaginable and unwarranted. But oh my friends, if you look at what the Scripture teaches and tells us, nothing else makes this world make sense. We, we are slow learners, right? You know, in the early part of the 20th century we had the idea mankind is getting better. The species is improving. And just to prove it, we fought a world war. Which the optimist called, do you remember that terminology from history class? I know none of you were alive at that time. Um the war, you remember the rest of that? To end all wars. Great slogan.
0: Worked out real nice until the
1: Second World War. And by then, we're getting a little pessimistic about the perfectibility of human beings. And you throw in a Korean conflict and a Vietnam War and the rise of atheistic communism and persecution and then in our own lifetimes the rise of Islamic fundamentalism and terrorism and all the other isms you want to come up with, it looks really dark. You know why it looks dark? Because we're a bunch of rebellious sinners. And we originally rebel against God, and that makes us fractious and difficult with everybody else. Now, I know, well, I'm not that bad. I didn't start any wars. Oh, could we talk about life in your extended family? Could we have a discussion about how things work for you at work? Hmm? All I'd have to do is ride around with some of you for just a little while in your car, and I'd figure some things out. Especially in Springfield, traffic, say, between Thanksgiving and Christmas? Mm. The Scripture reminds us and explains to us these objections. The fact is, in creation, God made things by the Word of God. Denial of the Creator, according to Peter, is a deliberate act. This is nothing but a smaller echo of what Paul tells us in Romans, the first chapter. Knowing God, they denied God. Keep this in mind, my friend. If any of you this morning claim to be an atheist, bless you, I love you, I'll pray for you, but I don't believe you. Well, I don't believe in God. I know that's what you say. But God tells me down deep, you know better. Well, that's insulting. No, that's truth. Maybe that's why it's insulting. Hmm. He not only creates, he upholds it. He puts it all together and then he holds it together. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, carried on by him. That's found throughout the text. Hebrews 1.3 three. Making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Just before that, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. My friend, the universe exists not in some quasi-deistic version where God sets the whole thing in motion and lets it go. God not only creates, but by his word he upholds. It is his world. There's not a stray rogue molecule anywhere. He's in charge.
0: Hmm. Now if that's where we're going to live
1: then we also have to remind ourselves that the word here that is consistent, this word from the apostles and prophets, this word about creation, about upholding. There's also a word here about destruction. Verses 6 and 7, By means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, and then a little later now stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. The first destruction of the world was a flood. It changed the world, but left it intact. The final destruction of the world will be by fire it shall remove and replace this world. Now that's the first point. I've got three and some of you just got really sad. The first one's long. Next two are shorter. So take hope. The Lord's promises are consistent. The other thing Peter shows us is the compassion of the Lord is His patience. Verses 8 and 9 He's answering the objection, well, where's the promise of His coming? Why hasn't something happened? As far as we know from the ancients, everything's continued the same way. Well, here's the answer. Do not overlook one fact, beloved, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance.
0: God doesn't view time the way we view time. The fact is, my friend, if if we stretch out the
1: 2,000 years from the time of Christ coming to this point, and then we stretch out another couple of, whatever, tomorrow or 2,000 more years, The fact is, God's promise is just as secure as if he made it yesterday. We cannot comprehend the relationship of eternity and time. you, You talk about getting a brain cramp, work on that one for a little while. How does eternity and time actually work? We are creatures of time. We live in time. The Lord is the one who made time as well as the rest of creation. In fact, you find in Genesis 1-1, time, space, matter. In the beginning, time. God created the heavens, space, and earth, matter. Those dimensions are part of a created order. Now, God's relationship to time, I've read a lot of theologians and it's fascinating stuff, but I wouldn't even begin to try to explain that to you. How does an eternal God create time, interact with time? How does all that? uh, I'll refer you to some books. Here's what I'll tell you, my friend. Creation includes time. And for the Lord, time does not have the same feeling or sense that it does for you and I. God lives in an eternal now. You and I live with beginnings and middles and endings. Let's take it a step further. His patience is salvation. The Lord's not slow to fulfill His promise to some slowness. But He's patient towards you. Not wishing any to perish but all reach repentance. Now some say well now obviously Doug this is a denial of your belief and Election that God saves whom He will. Actually, it's not. The question here first is what does it mean when God wills? That's a difficult question. Because if it's saying God is not willing in the sense of infallibly going to accomplish something, then that means everybody's got to be saved. But we know the text doesn't teach that. We're not universalists. I wonder if this is not addressing, in some sense, his will of disposition. Ezekiel eighteen twenty three: Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God, and not rather that they should tur- that he should turn from his way and live? The issue here, my friend, is this: When it says God is not willing, I think you can only take this in one sense. Maybe it's a second, but ultimately, what it comes down to, I think, is this: He's saying he's going to save his people, and God has a purpose. He's got a plan. You you do get this. When the last of the Lord's people are saved, when the last wandering sheep, the last blinded sinner who's going to enter the kingdom is saved, that's when this thing comes to a halt. Because that's the project, right? It is to gather his people. However you view that, he is in the process of saving his church. And he's doing it through missions, through the preaching of the word. He's doing it through the whole wide world. He's out there saving. And the minute the last one is saved,
0: I think that's project ended. Right? And we see the next part
1: the certainty. The certainty of a new heavens and a new earth, yes, but the certainty of the Lord's punishment. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a what? What a strange word, thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Hmm. So it's sudden, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now this seems to be a theme too, Luke 12. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he had not have left his house to be broken into. You also be ready. Comparison. The Son of Man's coming in an hour you don't expect. Or 1 Thessalonians 5. You yourselves are fully aware the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What's the comparison? It's not making a moral comparison, ethical comparison. It's making a comparison in this way. If you knew that somebody was planning to break into your house tonight you'd do something about it, right? If you you got word, you somehow found out, this so-and-so is going to break into my house at 8.07 p.m., assuming that I'm going to be gone tonight, I'm going to be there. I'm going to have the police there. I'm going to be ready. Not getting in. Okay? It's about preparation. None of us know when the Lord's coming. So well, we ought to anticipate and be prepared. And when he comes, it comes with this completion. The heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. When I read this, I think about the matter-of-factness of this statement said in a very ordered, calm
0: setting. And I put
1: that in distinction from what the thing is that's actually described here. I don't know about you, but I am, I am more than a little astonished, amazed, and wondering at the thought of watching the entire created order disappear
0: with a great noise, going to be loud, and fire.
1: Now, if you're really a pessimist, you kind of like the sound of that because you think that's how it's going to end anyway, you know, boom, we're all gone. But that's not the finish. Because if you read the rest of the text of Scripture, what you find out is there's going to be a new heavens and a new what? Earth? Hmm.
0: Hmm. I wonder why. Because the Lord is not done with His work. Let me close this way.
1: When you and I talk about what Christ does on the cross, we often, most frequently and rightly, address it in terms of what it does in individual lives, right? Christ died for sinners. You're a sinner, you need a Savior. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. That's what you need. Amen. I like that. It's right. Whether I like it or not, it's what the text says, right? Let's take it a step further though. What I read Paul say in Ephesians the first chapter and what I see in Colossians the first chapter is this idea that not only does the death of Christ redeem his people, that ultimately the death of Christ becomes the atoning work and the redemptive work that takes a heavens and earth that have been tainted by the presence of sin And sinners and remakes it. Brand new.
0: No tempter. Satan is cast out.
1: No sin because we're changed. And the glory of a new heavens and a new earth. And then, my friend, the adventure
0: really begins. We don't know what that will
1: all look like. But let me give you a little perspective. I hear people say, well now whenever the Lord comes back I'll know everything. No you won't. No. There's only one who knows everything. He's God. You're not. Don't, Don't turn yourself into some version of a Hindu or a Buddhist, that you'll be brought, no, no, no. There'll still be distinction God-man, okay? But the reality is what shall it be like for us to be glorified in His presence to no longer have sin limiting us and for there no longer to be anything like sickness, sadness, disease, or death?
0: my friend, this is
1: our future if we're his. All of us run into the struggles of this life and they seem huge. And here's what I've noticed. The younger you are, the bigger they are. (laughs) As you get older, they tend to get a little smaller because you've lived a little longer and all the disasters you thought were going to happen didn't. Or they do and you realize you have no control. So you trust. You live. But brothers and sisters, here's the glorious reality. Look around you. See these people? If they're the Lord's, they are one day going to be immortal creatures beyond your understanding at this point. Human, yes. Still human. And yet glorified and changed in ways that are beyond our comprehension. That is our future. And friend, if you're not his, that is not your future. Yours is eternal destruction away from the kindness and grace
0: of the Lord forever. And so here's my plea,
1: and with this I end. My friend, if you don't know Jesus, Christ died to atone for your sin, your failure. The guilt you feel is real because you're guilty. And you're guilty not just in your emotion and your feeling, you're guilty objectively because you have run from God, you've rejected Him, and you have ignored Him. And I say to you, as horrid as all that is, if you'll turn, if you'll repent, if you'll run to Him He'll receive you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you shall be saved. But Christian, if you're His, when you read about the judgment it ought to make you tremble. It ought to sober us all to ponder the reality of eternity, but, oh, it also ought to fill us with glorious hope.
0: We shall be
1: like Him, for we shall see Him as He is.
0: Believer, this is your glorious future. Let's pray.